CFEV 101.9 FM in Victoria is proud to present the Sanchothan Languageness, an episode of Full Circle, winner of the 2018 National Campus and Community Radio Award for Best Documentary. My name is Tiffany Joseph. I am from Husaitnich, which is anglicized into Sanich. I am working with um, a new project called Sayout Sanchothaneout, which just means Sayout Sanchothan Language House. We translated about 18 songs, nursery rhymes. We translated them from English into Sinchothan. You know, you, you describe everything that they're doing so that it's just natural. It comes out naturally in these songs. With that in mind, I'm creating a resource that I know for sure will not be colonizing. Rooted in Sinchothan, I've helped create them myself. It's been supported by people within my community. It's been supported by elders, the way that we translate it. This podcast was sponsored by the Community Radio Fund of Canada. To hear the full story, visit cfuvpodcast.com. This episode of Beyond the Jargon was produced on Treaty 7 territory home to members of the Blackfoot Confederacy, which includes the Bikani, Siksika, Kana, Stony Nakoda, and the Sutina First Nations. Treaty 7 is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta Region Number 3. This episode was produced for CFUV Radio, a station that is situated on the traditional territories of Lekwungen and Wasanich peoples, whose historical relationships with the land continues to this day. You're walking along the dock nearby a local fishing harbor. The distinct smell of salt and seaweed wafts in the air as you make your way over to the end of the boardwalk surrounding the waterfront. The sea beneath you is buzzing with dormant strength. Among the crowds of clustered sailing vessels, you see something bobbing up and down in the distance. A buoy. Its distinct cone shape and fluorescent orange color make it easy to spot out amongst the ebbing waves and misty blue waters. But what was floating beside it? A meshed around the bobbing buoy is a green net. Maybe it was something that was lost during a storm or during the onloading or offloading process from commercial fishery workers. In today's episode of Beyond the Jargon, we'll be talking about the lost fishing gear of the Coast Salish Sea. Where does it come from? And what does it do to our oceans, habitats, and marine life when it reaches the oceans? Welcome to Beyond the Jargon a podcast that aims to explore the work of graduate students here at the University of Victoria in a more demystified way. I'm your host, Funaro Obasoye, and today I'm joined with Environmental Studies master's student, Katie Frankel. My name is Katie. I'm a first-year master's student at UVic, and I am studying reasons for commercial fishing gear loss in BC and looking at areas that are high risk so I can map them uh, on the Salish Sea. All right, so hello, Katie, and thank you so much for joining me here today. Hi, yeah, thank you for having me. I'm uh, really excited to be here today. 
Yeah, my name is Katie. I'm a first year master's student at UVic in the School of Environmental Studies, and I am studying reasons for commercial fishing gear loss in BC and looking at areas that are high risk so I can map them on the Salish Sea. That's awesome. It sounds like really interesting work. You just described kind of the work that you're doing, but could we get more acquainted into how you got started in the field that you're in? Yeah, totally. This kind of goes like way back to when I was a kid. I've always just really loved marine everything as a kid, every marine animal possible. And yeah, like I remember like going to the pet store with my dad and picking up fish for the aquarium and like all this stuff. And so I kind of figured I always wanted to be like a marine biologist. I decided that from a young age and my dad actually went to UVic. And when I found out UVic had a marine biology program, they made the decision really easy for me. And yeah, I got my uh, undergrad in marine biology from UVic and I had some really cool experiences with co-op with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, as well as some field courses out at the Banfield Marine Sciences Center. And then I finished my undergraduate degree, not really knowing what to do or what marine biology looked like. So I kind of hopped around between a few different places. Um, I did an internship with Ocean Networks Canada for about seven months or so. And then I worked in Victoria's whale watching industry for a few months after that, before I got hired by Archipelago, which is a third party fisheries and marine monitoring company. So I was there actually for almost three years before I decided that it was time to just come back to school and further my education so I can become more specialized and play more of an active role in fisheries and the marine sciences in BC. Mm -hmm. So from your extensive experiences, um, did you kind of feel like you needed to play more of an active role after having those experiences with Archipelago and with Banfield? I did, actually. Yeah, I remember there was a professor uh, I bought Banfield. I did their fall program in 2015, and it was like the last course, I think. It was a really hard one, and I remember him mentioning that wherever it's the messiest, like that's where the most work needs to be done. And... I think that fisheries are inherently very messy and I find that really exciting because that means that there's lots of things that can be improved for both people and wildlife. And um, yeah, it, it made me want to kind of see what I could do to be part of more of an active change. You know, it's really important. Definitely the work I was doing at Archipelago was super important because it was, you know, monitoring what was being caught from the ocean and passing that data to the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and working with the commercial fishers. So it was really cool to get a lot of like hands-on experience and see how the commercial industry works in BC. It's very complicated. There's a lot of moving parts and a lot of really good people who are just trying to make things work. You know, I think there's some things that could definitely be ironed out to make it easier for people or to just make it a better system. And so, yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to go back to school to see if there's anything I could do to help. That's really cool, Katie. And now that you're working in a field related to this, what is some of the work that you've been doing currently and what does your current research entail? I know you kind of talked about that, but if you want to expand on it. Yeah, so... Um, Coming back to school, I knew I wanted to do something related to commercial fisheries. 
And actually, when I was at Archipelago, that's kind of where I became acquainted with the concept of ghost gear, actually through a lunch and learn talk by a couple of folks from the Global Ghost Gear Initiative. And they're an NGO um, with, you know, people from different groups in the marine sector from all over the world, just like trying to figure out this problem of lost fishing gear and mitigate the issues. And uh, what I really liked is they took a really solutions-based approach uh, rather than, you know, a lot of the doom and gloom you see in the environmental and marine sciences. So that actually really inspired me to be more solutions-based and to think about it more that way. So Anyways, going into what I do now, um, that's a big reason why I wanted to be a part of the Department of Environmental Studies at UVic. They're very solutions focused. So what I do now is, uh, right now it seems like a lot of paperwork. I finished all my courses uh, in April and uh, I've just been working through the human ethics review and occupational health and safety processes to get my research on the ground. So uh, I'm hoping in August, I'll start uh, doing some commercial fisher surveys just to see what they think about lost gear and why it's being lost and where it's being lost. And um, I will basically put their information that they provide on the survey through a series of statistics magic. And hopefully I can uh, map some areas in the Salish Sea that might be particularly high risk for commercial gear loss, which will hopefully help fisheries management, commercial fishers, marine conservationists make decisions about where fishing should be open or closed or like how we can figure this this issue out. Mm-hmm. That was a very expansive answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have like a million other questions to follow up with that. Okay. First, to break that apart, you talked about this concept of ghost gear. Just for me and our audience at home who might not know what that is, would you be able to expand on what ghost gear is? Absolutely. Um, So ghost gear entails any lost commercial fishing gear, whether it's, you know, accidentally lost or that's in the marine environment. And oftentimes uh, commercial fishing gear or even recreational fishing gear is lost just entirely by accident. Like, it can be wild out there on the water sometimes. And oftentimes it's just like a, it could be like a safety thing, right? The conditions could get really bad and it's just not safe to retrieve your gear. So yes. So ghost gear basically involves any lost uh, fishing gear out in the marine environment. So great. So now that we know what ghost gear is, um, you kind of outlined already what part of the process in your research or the stages of your project, I guess, would be in. And that's kind of the paperwork and the more bureaucratic things. So in this stage of your research, what have you found so far, if anything? Yeah. So um, one thing I'd like to add on to my previous definition of ghost gear, uh, just to clarify for people who might not be familiar with the topic. Um, the thing about fishing gear is it, it loves to continue to catch fish and catch animals. And so that's why it can be um, a problem. And that's kind of why I'm, I'm interested in figuring it out. Um, it can entangle animals, um, 92% of encounters with wildlife and in, in death. And it can also damage habitats as well. So that is definitely a concern for marine conservation, but also fisheries too. You don't know what types of fish stocks the ghost gear could be catching. So that can definitely make a a dent in the bottom line. So, so far, what I found is there's actually not a lot of research on this topic in BC. 
which is wild because there's a lot of fishing that happens in BC. Um, and when I, when I say there's not a lot of research, what I mean is there's not a lot of academic peer-reviewed research. However, there are um, NGOs in um, BC and Washington State who are really trying to lead the charge in helping like figure this issue out. And so from what I've read, I had to kind of like look at like, okay, I don't really know specifically what's going on in BC. That's why I want to ask the questions I want to ask, but what's happening on like a global scale, right? Um, And from what I've seen is that gear loss is often accidental and it can be due to a lot of different reasons that are all pretty specific to the place that um, you're fishing because there's different fisheries regulations, you know, there's different vessels that are around, the currents and the oceanography are totally different. And so I have found that some of the major reasons for gear loss around the world consists of, um, you know, bad weather or strong ocean currents. Uh, Your gear might get caught on the bottom of the ocean. Also, you know, interactions with other types of fishing gear. So maybe you have a stationary gear type like a trap that you leave your traps out, you know, for 24 hours to soak. But then maybe another type of boat with a different type of gear, like a trawl vessel comes by and just picks up all of your traps while they were being let out. So that happens sometimes. Also other vessels as well. So if there aren't very good regulations on like what's a shipping lane and like where fishing can take place, other types of boats can take out fishing gear too. Um, so there's just a lot of different reasons it can it can get lost. So what I think is interesting is none of these different reasons are acting just at once by themselves. So I think that there's the potential that there's some overlap happening between all these different things in the context of BC, which can be further complicated by all the different types of fishing we have here and all the different types of gear that we have as well. So it's a very complicated problem because there's lots of different moving parts. And um, with your data collection process beginning in August, what types of information are you hoping to find? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'll be... um, Working with uh, the Teapuck Suzuki Foundation, which is a a charity that works really closely with commercial fishers. Um, And so we'll be working together to do some dockside surveys of fishers in BC and just kind of asking them questions like, where have they lost gear before? Um, Out of all these different reasons that, you know, we've found out about gear loss, what's most important? in their gear loss experience, depending on the types of industry they're in and the type of gear that they use. And how would they rank that in terms of importance? Like if they are using a trap, is you know getting hung up on the ocean floor more important or is conflict with other types of fishing vessels more important? And also just kind of assessing too their experience and asking like what they think could help as well. Like what types of things could help them with their gear or what types of things have they actually come up with on their own to mitigate the issue as well. And I am hoping to have some mapping components on my survey too. So they can actually on a map, they can draw me a little shape of places they have lost gear if they're comfortable doing that, of course. And you were talking a bit earlier about how lost gear upsets marine life and has an effect on that. My follow-up question was, 
Based on your studies thus far, do you think that there could be an imminent risk to marine life from human development and commercial fishing around the coast? Mm-hmm. I definitely think that the uh, risk of lost gear is cumulative, cumulative over time. Um, you know, people have been fishing in BC for a really long time and that gear can be really difficult to retrieve. Um, so oftentimes, um, like fishing gear is really expensive in BC. So fishers will do their best to try to retrieve their gear because they don't want to buy new gear. (laughs) They also don't want to like, um, lose any of the cash that was in that gear. So I definitely think that like over time, you know, accidents happen, gear gets lost. Um, the effects on marine life has been cumulative. Um, however, another thing to note is that we actually just don't know exactly what the effects are in, in a BC context. Um, there was a study published in 1997 about the mortality of uh, crabs caught in lost traps, but there hasn't really been anything peer reviewed to say exactly what the effects are. So it is mostly a lot of speculation, I guess, or educated estimation based off of what we've seen all over the world. So yeah, it's, I, I definitely think that there is a problem. And then there's also a lot of organizations in BC who do uh, gear retrieval as well. And they have definitely seen like, um, you know, issues of animals getting entangled. The Victoria Pie Company is Victoria's first and oldest pie shop with savory and sweet pies made to order. Now with the option of gluten-free vegan pastry. They are open Monday to Saturday, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Victoria Public Market in the Hudson Building and Goldstream Station. Check them out at victoriapieco.com. Make friends with pie. We're the workers you don't always see. Administrative service workers. We're clerks, office managers, and assistants, IT staff, policy analysts, and the folks at the help desk. Some of us are UVic grads and former students. Whether behind the scenes or at the service counter, workplaces couldn't function without us. This message was brought to you by the BC Government and Service Employees Union. For more information about us, check out our website at bcgeu.ca. Currently, there is minimal research in BC regarding lost fishing gear. However, there has been some recent work led by NGOs and environmental consultants involving predictive mapping and collaborative workshops. Worldwide, 70% of the weight of macroplastics in the ocean are fishing related, and 640,000 tons of ghost gear enter our oceans every year. 92% of encounters between marine animals and debris can cause lethal problems, 
while other issues include habitat degradation, marine navigational hazards, and commercial and fishery stock declines. $3.6 billion of commercial catch was landed for Canada in 2018. With fishing being such a large business in Canada and BC, it is important to understand the reasons for commercial fishing gear loss in BC, as this could offer insights into where future management action and funding should be targeted. Mm -hmm. And um, this is a little off script, but that just raises the question in my mind. Whose responsibility do you think it is to retrieve gear that has been lost? Would it be the governments, these organizations, or the fishing companies themselves? That's a really good question. And like one thing I really like about the Global Ghost Gear Initiative's approach is they don't really blame anybody for gear loss. They're like, okay, look, it happens. That's just how how it is. Um, they definitely take the stance of like, it's it's already there, it's lost, let's all work together to figure it out. And so that's kind of how I view it too. I think that it's, you know, everyone's responsibility to do what they can to um, to help mitigate the issues. Um, gear retrieval is actually really dangerous and highly specialized. So of course there's only certain people who can do the boots on the ground gear retrieval work. Um, and there's off, like, you know, highly specialized divers and and fishers uh, are able to do that type of work. But I also think, you know, if you're in the fishery sciences, you're in marine conservation on a government level or an academic level, I think it is kind of also your responsibility to see what you can do to help. And that's a big, you know, reason why I wanted to come back to school. If I can make a little map of the Salish Sea that shows where high-risk areas can be, like that is helpful to hopefully to somebody and um, you know, people who are in power can make those decisions to figure out where we can start planning these retrieval efforts and, you know, giving funding to organizations or supporting fishers. So I think it's kind of like everybody working together. Yeah, that was a really good answer. It kind of answers my question after that. Um, but if you did want to expand, the question was, what are some things that can be done to mitigate this problem to the best of your knowledge? Yeah. So um, in 2017, the Global Gulf Gear Initiative published their best practices framework, which is a two-part document showing how di at different levels in the marine industry, everyone can help. And it covers stuff like um, on the fisher's end, like very clearly marking their gear and having good onboard storage so things don't get lost in a wave. Um, but also thinking on a fisheries management perspective, you know, having fishers decrease their soak times and having gear loss reporting protocols and, um, you know, decreasing overlap between different industries that might have gear that conflict with each other. So, yeah, there's lots of different things that people at like all levels can do. And then I guess lastly on this topic, this is a little bit more of like the speculation, but what could the future of marine life in BC look like if these issues remain unaddressed? Yeah, I think that, of course, like marine wildlife entanglement is awful. Habitat degradation is awful. And it is exacerbated by the fact that um, a lot of commercial care is made from plastic fibers which don't degrade like a natural fiber does. And when they do, 
they make the microplastics, which is like a whole other, like uh, a whole other can of worms. So of course it would, it would, you know, continue to lead to issues in the marine environment. But I think the awesome thing about BC is that there are people in the province who are making sure that this issue doesn't go unaddressed. Um, there's lots of gear retrieval organizations in the province. The federal government has actually now made Ghost Gear a priority, which is awesome. I think it was in 2019 they announced their Ghost Gear fund, and they're funding about 26 different projects around the country to make sure that this gear gets retrieved and to make sure we have responsible disposal. Cause that's another issue too. Once you retrieve this gear, like what do you do with it afterwards? Right? So I think that the future is very bright in terms of this particular problem. And I think there's a lot of momentum going forward to help mitigate it. Yeah. And kind of on a related note, I know that there's a lot of green technologies being developed and like microplastics being converted into usable swimwear or shoes. Mm -hmm. What overlaps per se do you think that there could be with your research and these developments in these green technologies? Do you see like a bright future or like some overlap in those types of plastic problem mitigation? Yeah. I do. Well, I mean, in order to make um, a bathing suit out of lost commercial fishing gear, you have to find it first. So I'm hoping that my research will help um, people find uh, where gear could potentially be lost. Um, so that's kind of how I hope it contributes to, to those types of things. And actually, um, yeah, in BC, I know there's been some work in Vancouver to look at gear um, cleanup facilities so people can bring in their gear and get it all cleaned up and ready to go be recycled. I think that there's a recycling plant in Austin, Texas now, somewhere in the States. Um, so then you can ship the gear that gets brought into Vancouver to go get recycled and made into all these other fabulous things. I love that. I think that's such a good way to make things more circular. And so you stated in your research description that you will be using survey data to compare outputs from a series of statistical models to determine the relative importance of each reason for fishing gear loss. Would you be able to expand a bit more about this approach? I know that you have a little bit already, um, but if you could talk about how you plan on conducting this, that would be great. Yeah, so that is kind of where the statistical magic comes in at the end. So basically what I want to do is I have the survey of, um, for the commercial fishers and I, I want them to essentially rank and like show me which types of uh, gear loss risks are like most important for them in terms of this is definitely going to lead to me losing my gear to like least important, like, oh, this isn't really going to affect anything. And um, I can throw it into this process called the analytical hierarchy process. And basically what that is, it's a process that um, basically helps in really complicated decision making. So it'll take the responses from the fishers and it'll do its magic and it'll kind of rank them for me. And from there, um, once they're ranked, I have uh, relative importance for each type of reason. Um, and this is important when I go to start making maps of the Salish Sea with all these reasons, um, because if I have a relative importance or otherwise known as a statistical weight 
for all of my different factors in gear loss, those, when I put them into my hotspot map, depending on how heavily weighted each variable is, it's going to show me areas that are going to be more risky for gear loss, for example. So if it comes back that areas that are quite rocky, um, like big rocky pinnacles where your gear could get caught up on, those are, are weighted more heavily than maybe ocean currents. When I go to map it, the areas in the Salish Sea with big rocky pinnacles are going to have a, a bigger effect than some of the other variables. Yeah, I mean, it does. Um, my follow-up question to that was, what might cause some places in the Salish Sea to be more high risk than others? Um, and you kind of already highlighted that with, you know, a rocky area versus wave currents. Do you have any other examples of this? Yeah, so that was kind of an example off the top of my head because we don't really know. And then to make matters more complicated is it's going to be totally different for every industry and every gear type too. So I am hoping to kind of amalgamate the data um, in terms of like the general categories of nets, traps, and um, line gear uh, to see if I can kind of on average, if you're fishing with a net, these types of areas tend to be more problematic than others. Um, but yeah, it's going to totally depend on different gear and industry, which is also um, daunting from a statistical uh, standpoint for me anyways, because I'll have to figure this out. But it's also really exciting because it's messy and it means that um, it can be figured out. Another thing I, I wanted to point out too is um, to kind of check because I don't know if this like analytical hierarchy process has been used in this particular context. And I do have access to some data that are like around the variables I'm looking at in gear loss. I want to kind of also run another statistical model. So I'm basically going to give all of this information to a statistical model, as well as some uh, ghost gear sighting data points that I have access to. And this model will tell me what it thinks is the most important. So then I'll be comparing what, according to the surveys, the fishers find most important to what, according to my statistical model, uh, it thinks most is most important. Ideally, there should be overlap. If there's not overlap, that opens up an entire other can of worms. <laughs> Interesting. So you'll be like taking surveys and data from fishers who work in that field. And then also with your magical statistical processor, you'll be getting or interpreting data that way and then comparing the two. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Cool. And so then why is this work important? Yeah, I think it's important because there's, while there's a lot of support uh, around uh, lost commercial fishing gear and ghost gear, in BC now uh, with all this like federal government funding, there's still not a lot of research. So it's awesome that this is a topic that's becoming more talked about and more supportive, but we kind of need to know what we're working with first, I think, before we, we make too many actions. So I just hope that my work will help kind of provide a little more insight. I mean, it's so hard when you can't really see what you're working with until under the ocean. Um, so hopefully this will provide a bit of guidance in terms of priority for fisheries management decisions. Um, but then also like 
on an environmental and like an economic level too. Like fishers don't want to lose their gear. That's really expensive. And if fishing gear is damaging habitats and, you know, entangling animals, that's also going to directly affect um, commercial fishing stocks, whether it's the gear that's directly entangling fish that are commercially important or they're affecting the habitats and the food sources for those commercially important fish. It's, yeah, important to make sure that the marine environment is okay, especially because in BC, um, I think that the ocean is really important to a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. So we just want to make sure we can conserve it so we can continue to work with it and enjoy it for next generations. Yeah, that's a really good answer. I was also thinking and wanted to add that recovery would be pretty expensive and the, the damage that um, would be done by all of these losses, I feel like would add to the economic importance of making sure we mitigate these types of problems. Yeah, that's actually really interesting that you bring that up because it can depend on the context too, right? Like in some cases, uh, there were some studies in Washington state that found that for the Dungeness crab industry, it was actually more cost effective to go retrieve lost crab traps than it was to just leave them out there because the commercial industry would lose out on that revenue. However, I've heard in BC, it, and again, it totally depends on the gear type and the context. There's some gear that's kind of been lost and it's down there for so long that collecting it could actually damage the marine environment further. It might have just become part of the environment at this point. So it could damage the environment more or it could be really expensive. And then it's also really dangerous as well. So it is definitely very context dependent. That's really interesting. This whole study seems so variable and there's so many factors. And like you said, moving parts to it. Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts and I defend next August. So we'll see how that pans out. (laughs) I'm sure you'll be fine. Um, Would you be able to speak a bit more on some of the possible implications of lost fishing gear on human populations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think when it comes to people, I think it's more the economic importance. Well, it depends. I mean, like... The oceans mean a lot to different people in BC for different reasons, for sure. Like, there's definitely a lot of people who rely on the oceans for economic reasons. There's lots of people who rely on it for cultural reasons as well. So, yeah, I think economically, we want to make sure that our, our fishing practices are sound. It's just become such a part of BC's economy that... We want to make sure we can we can keep doing it. Um, we can keep people employed. There's lots of people on the North Island and uh, North Coast of BC, even Vancouver, the West Coast of the island, who really rely on these industries. So, yeah, I mean, if there's catastrophic issues with commercial industry, then that's going to affect a lot of people. But also, I think in terms of just like intrinsic and like cultural importance, People love the ocean. People come from all over the world to go diving here, to come whale watching, to go storm watching and hang out on the beach when it's sunny outside. So, of course, we want to keep that all, you know, nice for people to enjoy. 
Yeah, I think the ocean has a lot of value, whether it is economic or intrinsic. Mm -hmm. Um, And so your study area is relatively local. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that this is an issue that just British Columbians should be worried about? Or should a wider population of people be, you know, looking out for this as well? Yeah, I mean, the ocean basically provides most of our lives and our oxygen, right? Like phytoplankton, I think actually, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. But I think phytoplankton actually provide more oxygen than the rainforests do. So everybody is affected by the ocean. And I also think too, like if you eat seafood, I think it's, you know, part of your responsibility as a consumer to have an understanding of how your food is caught and like what goes into it. Commercial fishers are some of the hardest working people out there, you know, and they deserve the recognition for the hard work they do. And so if you're eating seafood, I think you should have to think about that. You know, the implications of what fishing can do and also just the recognition of how hard work it is. And I think it's something that everyone can, you know, be interested in. Even if you don't live immediately beside the ocean, I think it's so important to educate yourself, you know, in any way that you can. Um, Because the only way sometimes to get certain things passed, like in politics, is to have everybody know about it, you know, have everybody interested. So I think this is an issue everyone should be worried, not not worried about as in like, things are going to be catastrophic, but just like, I think people should be educated about Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you kind of highlighted this with saying people that eat seafood should be in the know and like everyone who, you know, has interactions with the ocean should be in the know. But my next question uh, jumps off of this a little bit. And I wanted to ask who and what would benefit most from this research? Yeah, I think directly speaking um, from my research, Um, definitely folks in marine conservation, fisheries management, and commercial fisheries. They'll definitely be my target audience. I think they'll benefit the most, especially because there is a bit of a rift between the commercial fishers and government. There's a lot of distress there. And I, what I really hope is like, just by recognizing that commercial fishers are experts in this field, I am not. They are, you know, I need them to help me do this research. I I hope that by relying on that community knowledge and like recognizing that this community knowledge is important, I I hope that's beneficial, you know, just so that, yeah, I think too, there's definitely a lot of stigma, you know, like, oh, scientists, like they think they know everything. We don't, (laughs) we never will. But I think there's definitely more of a trend to like, um, bring in people who might not have been properly recognized as experts to help with academia. So yeah, I hope the fishing industry and management will find this helpful. That's really cool um, how this is community-based knowledge acquisition rather than just scientific and data-based. And not only is it Mm community-based, but you're also, you know, throwing it back at the community for them to use it with the findings. Mm -hmm. And so this was more directed towards you, how has your experience working within the field of environmental studies and conservation shaped your affinity for conducting research within the field as a graduate student? Yeah, I came from a very um, natural science background. I did my undergrad in marine biology, and we didn't 
learn how to consider people when conducting research. And um, science doesn't exist in a vacuum. It never has. And most certainly now it does not. You know, like science affects people's lives, especially when it comes to natural resources and the environment. So I think, um, yeah, being in the School of Environmental Studies is really awesome because I feel like I'm catching up on <laughs> some of the things I, I should have known or uh, I, I didn't know until now about how intrinsic everything is to each other. Um, of course, working alongside the commercial industry also helped. I got to see firsthand communities and how reliant they were on the industry and, you know, talk to people about it. And so, yeah, I think being in this uh, School of Environmental Studies, it's really like broadened my horizons on, you know what, like social science is important too. For my project, I probably could have got away with just doing all of my statistical modeling based off of data I already had without having to do any surveys. But that's why I wanted to add that survey perspective into my project, because what if I do all that statistical modeling and it turns out it's totally wrong, right? Like, what if I do only that part and I just didn't do the survey and I thought I was right, but like when it comes to people who are actually boots on the ground, they're like, this is totally wrong. You should have like come talk to us like, oh, just another stupid scientist doesn't know what they're doing. So yeah, I think it's uh, important um, to recognize that there's uh, people outside of academia who have a lot of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is just for the listeners at home who might be curious. What are your top two favorite species of marine animals? Only picking two is like picking between children. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I really love uh, gray whales um, and hermit crabs, which I think people probably would find really boring compared to most other things, but I'd say those are my favorites. That's pretty cool. Um, so you're not going to like this last question. <laughs> <laughs> Who would win in a fight, a gray whale or a gray whale-sized hermit crab? Oh, that's a... Oh, I've never thought about that before. I've seen some pretty big hermit crabs, actually. <laughs> um, I remember when I was in Banfield, we went out to this place called the Great Tide Pool, and it was like this tide pool that was the size of a swimming pool. And I remember seeing hermit crabs that were like the size of like both my fists together. I might have to pick the gray whale-sized hermit crab because gray whales are kind of dopey a little bit. And hermit crabs have um, pinchers, right? As like gray whales don't really have, they don't have teeth or anything. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> That's okay. I, I don't know. I asked you. I'm like, ask the marine conservationist. Um, on the other hand, gray whales have the mass. I mean, I, I just assume that they could throw their blubber around and kind of squash Earth. But if the hermit crab is the same size, though, yeah, I don't know if right. mass matters. <laughs> I don't know. You're right. But a hermit crab can't swim, so there could be sneak attacks. Oh, I don't know. This is true. Hermit crabs don't really swim. Then mm, <laughs> maybe the gray whale could win because they could swim away. <laughs> this is a con confrontational fight. It's not retreating. Oh, it's not retreating. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah I guess we'll leave it up to uh the ocean to decide if that ever happens 
But on that note, is there anything else you'd like to add in terms of last thoughts or reflections? Yeah, um, I think that, and I hope this came across, um, when talking about the environmental sciences and the state of the world and the state of the oceans, there's a lot of negativity, which, of course, that's like totally warranted. Absolutely. Things are scary right now with climate change and everything else that's happening. This is true. But I just want people to know that there is a lot of research surrounding hope in the environmental sciences um, and that taking a more hopeful and positive outlook is actually more helpful and useful. Um, I know that there's been people in my own life who like, you know, watch documentaries or something on Netflix and not everything was particularly true in said documentaries and they come away feeling totally anxious about the state of the oceans or the environment and like totally upset and paralyzed and like they can't do anything and that isn't helping anybody. So I just um, want people to know if they do feel that way. There's people around the world who've dedicated their entire lives to trying to help these issues. And if, if you want to help, there's lots of things you can do um, that are relatively easy or like low cost, you know, like even just looking into different organizations, um, trying to help educate people about marine life or help remove ghost gear, even donating like $5 if you can to an organization that removes ghost gear, um, going down to the beach and just becoming familiar with the environment, talking to, you know, your local politicians and really advocating for positive changes, like for the ocean. Like there's lots of different things you can do and there's lots of good documentaries on Netflix as well. So check your sources, um, check to see who published those documentaries. Um, and just like asking questions because yes, things can be scary, but it's not like we're all up the Creek without a paddle. Like we've got people all over the world who are trying to make things better. So I just think elevating those voices is a better use of time than like being totally climate anxiety paralyzed, you know, things are bad, but I think there's the potential that for things to get better. That's a really positive outlook. Yeah, I think sometimes the anxiety, it's kind of a fight or flight thing. You might freeze because of it and get kind of scared and hermit crab away, or it might mobilize you into action. But either way, I think looking at things that you can do is a good use of time in any respect. So it's really cool that you left us off on that note. And yeah, thanks, Katie. I uh, wish you the best for your research and hope it goes well. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I love podcasts, so it's always really fun to get to participate in them. You've been listening to Beyond the Jargon a podcast series that aims to demystify the work of graduate students here at the University of Victoria. This interview was conducted with Environmental Studies master student, Katie Frankel. If you'd like to learn more about Katie and her work, head over to cfuvpod.ca. 
This podcast was produced by CFUV with financial support from the University of Victoria's Graduate Student Society. CFUV is a nonprofit radio station broadcasting from the University of Victoria, which is situated on the traditional territories of the Wasanich and Lekwungen peoples. The music featured in this episode includes Tomorrow by Space Monkey Death Sequence and Hurricanes by Aaron Hersent. From Treaty 7 to Lekwungen Territories, I'm your host, Funaro Basoye. song was so good. What was it called? Hmm, I don't know. No sweat. You can call or text us. You can call us or text us at 250-721-8700. And we'll give you all the info you need. So that you can discover new music at your fingertips. CFUV 101.9 FM. Get in touch. Be part of a live recording experience while it's happening. Join us on Basement Closet Sessions every Friday afternoon at 3 p.m. Hang out with your favorite artists while they play their latest albums, broadcasting live from the floor of our basement studio in the Student Union Building. Tune in to CFUV 101.9 FM and CFUV.ca.